Big Ten Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those beautiful ears. And if you're watching this on video, I appreciate your eyeballs as well. Today, we're going to go deep into competitive buying, buyer-facing teams, why people don't buy. And there's a guy here that's going to explain all that to us, and his name is Matt Hines. Matt Hines, welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast. How are you doing? Oh, my goodness, Victor. Thanks so much for having me. Love, be, love you being here. I saw this report from our sponsors, Big Ten Can, and I was going through the report, and I was like, I have questions. But before we get into this report, <laughs> listen, people, you're going to want to hear what Matt's report has to say about the buying experience today and how buyers buy. But before we do that, Matt, can you tell them who you are? Don't be bashful. Don't be shy. Lay it on them. Yeah. Uh, my name is Matt Hines. Uh, I started a company called Hines Marketing about 14 years ago. We help B2B companies build more predictable pipeline. So we work with a lot of companies that either are generating a lumpy pipeline or are executing on random acts of marketing where there isn't enough throughput. There isn't a consistent, predictable, repeatable set a qualified pipeline for sales. And so we help marketing organizations learn how to do it and teach them how to do that perpetually moving forward. Love it, man. Two big questions here. Uh, do you ever get confused with the ketchup thing? Heinz, do you ever get that crack? Yeah, hundred percent. I do. I do get that a lot. I, I, but I lean into it whenever I can. Two, two way. One, when I was in fifth grade, I ran for student body treasurer, and my campaign slogan was fifty-seven varieties of honesty. So I got that going for me. And then also, you're you're gonna love this. So we do. Um, I don't know how you are. People listening are college football fans, but every employee at Heinz Marketing has a Heinz Marketing, a full size Heinz Marketing football helmet, and we give away helmet stickers. So whenever we do a team meeting, we do helmet stickers that we give people based on like, you know, exhibits of our values. Here's the sticker. If you can see this, it is a plush ketchup bottle with arms and legs and a face. It's a Heinz ketchup bottle that we took a picture of and put on a sticker. Um, so I got I got no problem leveraging the the side of the family that I have no part of. Yeah, you're you're so getting close to suit. You're getting so close to being suit. <laughs> but by the way, let, let's talk. You used a word that I rarely hear, uh, and that is a lumpy pipeline. Before we jump into yeah. this report, uh, define a lumpy pipeline for my folks. Well, I mean, if look, it, very few companies like want to have lumpy results. And yet when you think about the traditional arcs of marketing efforts, it's like, okay, we spin up this outbound campaign and we've got a conference coming up next month. And so when you have those efforts, you've get a flood of leads and that's great for that period. But then you're like, okay, well, that trade show is not until next year. And it takes us another few months to get another campaign up and rolling. So you end up with just chunks of demand that supplies the sales team part of the time. And too often, there is no connection between the demand marketing is generating and the sales that sales needs. And so if you haven't built that together, if you don't have a single model that says, I need this many deals, therefore I need this much in pipeline, therefore I need this much in demand. For those of you watching the video, I'm kind of doing the little funnel here, right? Those three numbers and sales and marketing both use that same metric and marketing needs to be able to generate that demand perpetually, repeatably, predictably. That is part of the job of the organization is to ensure that there is there is consistency and a smooth and scalable set of pipeline being created. That is very it's 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 easier said than done, but unfortunately most organizations aren't even focused on it. 
See, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, uh, we, we have a lot of enterprise listeners, right? But, you know, the small, medium-sized business owners are big listeners of the Sales Influence Podcast. What do you find, you know, when you're talking to some of these companies? I'm not talking about the big ones, right, the huge ones with the large budgets, but the ones that are just trying, you know, they're there, they're right in the middle, the middle-tier market. What are some of the challenges they face, and what are some of the challenges you face in trying to get them to understand, like, you know, consistency in marketing is key. Like, just give me a day in the life of Heinz Marketing. You know, if you think think about the the kind of pitches that you get on a daily basis, and I'm not just talking about you, Victor, but if you're listening to this, think about what comes across your desk. It's interruptive, right? It is it it ninety eight percent of what you get has nothing to do with what you're trying to get done that day. So if I don't care how big you are, we're a 20 person company, right? And so we're trying to do our own marketing as well. So, you know, I've got constrained resources, just like a lot of small businesses. My biggest job is to move my marketing from being interruptive to being irresistible. How do you create marketing that people want to engage with, that they can't wait to get the next set of content from you? And one of the ways, best ways to do that is to stop talking about yourself. The longer you wait in the sales process to talk about yourself, the better off you are. The more you're talking about your customer, their needs, their objectives, their problems, are you quantifying a problem that your prospect didn't even know that they had? By raising the question, you are challenging their status quo, and that alone provides value. And this prospect now says, that was interesting. Walk with me and tell me more. That's the position you want to be in. Right. And so there's there's understanding your audience. There's creating the right content and insights for that. There's understanding what channels you need to be using to get in front of those people. And that together forms the basis of a campaign. But I think that's the key to getting that. One of the keys to getting predictable pipeline is making sure that you've got a message that resonates and builds credibility with your end audience. But that, and that's not easy, is it? I mean, do you find it no. like, you know, creating that when we talk about insight, you know, my definition of insight is give me information beyond the obvious, something I don't know. And but you said two things here. It's creating that the right content and then figuring out the right channels. You know, mm-hmm. where does a company like Heinz Marketing help in that? Well, we help companies develop those fundamental understandings of their market, right? I mean, if you haven't sort of defined not just, oh, we sell in healthcare, like that's fine, but what's your actual target account, right? What do they look like? How, what's the segment, what's the subset of your target account that makes them sort of obtainable and makes it so that they actually have the conditions that make them ready to buy? So you narrowly define that smaller set of companies that you want to sell to. Then you figure out who are the people inside the organizations, not just personas. Lots of companies develop personas of individuals. Put those personas in motion. Put them in motion vertically and horizontally. Vertically meaning I need to understand the buying committee. Who are the people in the organization that need to reach consensus for a commitment to change to move forward. And then horizontally along a buying journey, who is involved at different stages of the buying process? So you've got a precision map of what to say to who when, right? So that's a starting point. And then you can use that if you've gotten who are, what companies we're selling into, who are the people of those companies, how to talk to them at different points in time in the buying process as well as relative to cohorts of the buying committee. Now I've got Now I can say, okay, how do I reach them? And how do I use a body of work across multiple channels to influence their next steps, to influence whether they are challenging their status quo, to influence a commitment to change, which precipitates a commitment to finding someone, a product or solution that can help them change. So, so a lot of companies say like, I just need to build pipeline. I just need to start, I just need to start doing something. So can we just start sending emails? I'll write an email. We'll just start sending emails. That my (laughs) friends is the fastest path to the random acts of marketing and the lumpiness we talked about at the beginning. So investing in that foundation of understanding your audience, 
right? Really understanding what motivates them and what messages are going to get across to them. What are the keys to making whatever you execute being irresistible, not interruptive? So we yeah. help companies do that. And honestly, like we, you know, we, we then teach the internal organization how to execute that moving forward. There's a mindset and a discipline to doing this well in a series of campaign cadences that over time generate predictable, repeatable, and scalable pipeline. That, oh my God, I, there's you said so many wonderful things in there, Matt. I like the vertical and horizontal. Never heard that one before. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm a, but I want to ask you this question. I, I need you to give me this question from the gut, not from the head. You ready? Gut, from, not the head. Okay. What, what makes you mad? Like you, you walk into a company and you see what you see, right? And you're like, why don't you fill in the blank? Why don't these people just fill, it, fill in the blank? Fill in those blanks for me. What makes Matt Hines mad when he goes into a company and is like, why, why, why? What are things that you find that make you mad? You know, there's a couple related things. One, thinking that pipeline can just be created quickly, thinking that you can just start executing something and that it'll immediately turn into demand. <laughs> and two is just a, a lack of a fundamental understanding of sort of how marketing can be successful in an organization. Google did some research a couple of years ago and found that only 3 to 4% of board members in B2B companies have direct marketing experience, right? Mm. So you, you are fighting an uphill battle as a marketing leader trying to, trying to help people that don't know marketing, that think they know marketing, understand how marketing works. And, you know, we, we, we run a, um, a community of CMOs. We've got about 1,700 CMOs that, like, you know, one of my, in, there's a Slack community where they all kind of hang out. One of my favorites is a channel in the Slack community is the Rant channel. And you hear a lot of people, you see a lot of people complaining about the conversations they're having internally, the things they hear from their head of sales, the things they hear give from their some, board. Give me some, give me some, Matt. Come on, feed, feed me some gossip here from the rant machine. I mean, some of it, I mean, it's, 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 the, it's the fact that they're just like, hey, you know, our, you know, our pipelines, you know, we're, so enterprise deals, like, you know, 12 month sales cycles. And people think, oh, I need pipeline next week. What can you generate for me? It's like, it doesn't work that quickly. Like you just can't, you can't do that. Or, you know, the fact that you're trying to build consensus amongst like global 500 companies and you think, you know, paid search is going to get you your leads. It's like, it's not that easy. Or the fact that like the white paper download, Hey, let's just go generate a bunch of white paper downloads. And like that didn't close the deal. Like it's, it's, it's generating perpetual predictable demand is far more complex than that. I, I wish we were still in a world where you could just like send an email, download a white paper, pass it to 23 year old build pipeline. That doesn't work. It, I, I would argue it never worked, and it certainly doesn't work now. So the complexity of driving enterprise per predictable demand, um, it is a science and a discipline that I think a lot of organizations don't understand. Um, and, yeah, that's you yeah, talk about I, my gut. Like you started to get me on my soapbox on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, no, but, I, but that's what I wanted because you said something earlier. It's all about mindset and discipline, and mm -hmm. those are two things. I mean, mindset is like, okay – you almost have to rethink how we do this and, and get yeah. away from, as you say, the, 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 the switch uh, pipeline turn-ons, which is, uh, you know, just generate an email, you know, generate a white paper, and everything should be fine. We should get our pipeline back. But it requires a different mindset and discipline. And so before we jump into your report, last question on this, because I just think it's fascinating because I think the biggest – I used to laugh at marketing, Matt. I used to go, these mm -hmm. people don't have a real job. I had Remember that Wanamaker line, 50% of my marketing works. I just don't know which 50%. Remember that yeah. joke? Yeah. And so we would always laugh at marketing. But today what's happened is that marketing has – to me, it's become more important than sales because of all the customer preferences, you know, the buyer journey, trying to figure out what's online. And so 
as, as, as you're looking at today's buying market, what are a lot of, you know, if you were to do one, two, three, Victor, if companies just did one, two, three, they at least would be on the right path to putting together a coherent marketing strategy. What would be the top three things that they definitely need to, the blocking and tackling, three things they need to do? Well, you mentioned a revenue mindset. That's the first one. Um, just, you know, understand that your goal is not to generate pipeline. Your goal is not to generate leads. It's, it's to generate dollar bills, right? And then if you have that revenue mindset, it allows you then just to look across a much wider set of options as a marketer. I know we have some clients that spend more of their time and effort and budget on sales enablement than they do on demand generation, right? right. A traditional company in marketing might say, like, it's just up and to the right. More leads better. More leads better. Not necessarily. It could be counterproductive if you're generating bad leads or leads from the companies you can't sell to successfully. So that revenue mindset helps you say, like, what can I do to support the bottom of the funnel? What can I do to support existing customers to increase increase renewals and referrals, right? That's one. Two is to have the right dashboard, right? Too many marketers go to the board meetings and they say, well, here's my open rates and click rates, and here's how much traffic our latest videos got. Like, those may be important building blocks of building awareness and demand. But if you take those metrics of the board, the board is going to think those are the metrics you care about. Right. right. When you go to the board, you should report, be reporting on marketing influence on revenue and how well you understand changing dynamics of the market. See, some marketers, some marketing leaders are redefining their role from chief marketing officer to chief market officer. Latney Conant at Sixth Sense was one of the per- first people I saw that did this. Hmm. Chief marketing officer implies the action of marketing. Chief market officer implies that you understand the addressable market, that this is under, the better you understand how the market is changing, what the competitive set looks like, how big the market is, how, how it's constricting, growing, the better you can be at marketing inside that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right that, you know, I think, you know, you don't know which half of your marketing is working. I think Dilbert once said that, you know, marketing is basically liquor and guessing. There is liquor and guessing in marketing, um, <laughs> but it's got to be more than that. And I think the more, you know, you can speak the language of sales, speak the language of the CFO, the more mm-hmm. your dashboard reflects what the sales leader has and what the CFO has, the more credibility you're going to have. Love it. Uh, so revenue mindset, right dashboard. I like the fact that you talked about getting away from uh, vanity metrics, we'll call those, right? Things that really don't yep. matter, don't add up to anything. What would be the third thing? Right mindset, right dashboard. Right mindset, right dashboard. And I would also say just like full alignment with sales. And that is everything from like in having a single model that says, here's the, de- here's the, here's the sale, close deals that need to happen. Here's the demand needs to support that. But then also like that's, that's jazz hands at sales kickoff, right? Like you can go to sales kickoff and say, Hey, this is all great. We all believe in the same thing. But then what happens on Tuesday morning, right? How well have you defined how your rank and file are executing together? Like if, if we're generating demand and your sales rep calls up someone and says, hey, thanks for downloading the white paper. Would you like to see a demo? The answer is going to be no. But how are you helping that sales rep take a white paper and convert that into broader interest? Thanks for downloading the white paper. Why the hell did you do that? Right. What about that topic is interesting to you? What is going on in your organization that made this worth downloading today? Right. Who else is worried about this in your organization? And how can we help you with insights to help sort of further stir up this challenge and help you get a commitment to change. Now, some version of that that is maybe a marketing message that is supported through sales. So again, Tuesday morning when some demand is identified, you know what to do. Further, that same playbook says, okay, maybe demand didn't come in at all. But how how are you watching the market? How are you looking for intent signals across the market that allow you to follow up with the right prospect at the right time with the right message? 
And so like that playbook, that operational playbook that gets into the weeds and gets pretty detailed. But like, again, like you can like wave your hands at sales kickoff all you want. If you don't pass the Tuesday test, then you're not going to generate predictable pipeline on a daily basis. I agree with that. I agree with that. Revenue mindset, right dashboard, alignment with sales. And you mentioned earlier, you talked about, you know, demand gen versus enablement. And, you know, the sponsor of this podcast is Big Tin Can. One of the things I like about that is they really try to collapse, you know, a lot of things under one platform. What do you see? I mean, I'm almost thinking that the word like, you know, sales, like uh, like vice president of sales or chief sales officer is almost like it's going out you know what I mean? Like, we're not seeing that anymore. We're seeing more of the chief revenue officer. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. what do you see from your perspective in terms of what are the new requirements for this new position that seems to be evolving? Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, I think anytime we can sort of say, I mean, in any organization, you're going to have roles, right? Um, marketing has a role in driving revenue. Sales has a role in driving revenue. You've got this SDR, this you know, this sales de- development team. Sometimes it's in sales, sometimes it's in marketing. Where should it sit? Doesn't matter. As long as the roles are defined, as long as you know what how that fits into the broader picture, yeah, I think in some organizations, honestly, I think the CRO is just a is a VP of sales that wanted to get retained and promoted, and so they get sort of the broader <laughs> title. And sometimes they still right. just own sales, right. right, and just have a C suite title. Sometimes they are promoted to be captain or given marketing, and they, sometimes they don't understand marketing and they just like treat it as the arts and crafts department or sort of you know right. just sort of push it in a thousand different directions. But I I'm seeing more CMOS get promoted to CRO now. I'm seeing more CMOs get promoted to COO. Uh, a friend of mine, a longtime CMO, just two weeks ago took took a job as a CEO of a SaaS organization, right? Right. That happens. That the, and there's a number of things that, that is consistent about marketers that make that leap. The biggest one is that revenue mindset. It's right. speaking the language of the business. And it's taking action on that and understanding that sometimes the traditional role of marketing takes a, takes a back, do- back door or takes a, takes, a, takes a back step to other initiatives that are more important across the organization. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, to, to me, I see this, this – I never looked at it that way, that more CMOs are getting promoted to CROs or maybe even COOs or CEOs. That's really interesting because I really think that the power shift has happened where – Marketing now is a more dominant player. It's more, again, because of buy preferences and all that customer journey. But I got to get to this report because I really want to talk to you. I went through it. I go, this is interesting stuff. This report you generated, sponsored by Big Tin Can, you know, roadblocks of delivering a competitive buying experience. You know, what was the genesis, the reason for this report? Well, I think there's a few things, but one is that I think we, we wanted to better define and give marketers and sales professionals a blueprint for how to support their sellers at the end of the, at the towards the end of the sales process. I mean, like a lot of marketers are fo- like focused on demand, focused on building awareness and preference, focused on driving pipeline and interest into sales. But then usually it's okay, off you go. Good luck with that, right? And so the right. opportunity to say not just, hey, we need to support the sales organization more directly, but how do we do that? What's the blueprint for providing better support to sales to help increase close rates and increase deal velocity? What are the best companies doing? And so that's why we wanted to, we wanted to be able to give a blueprint to companies that want to that focus in on that. And I noticed you had a great distribution of, uh, when you looked at the demographics, the methodology and a respondent breakdown, the functional roles, titles, and everything. Tell me a little bit about the people who actually gave you the data for this report. Talk to me about that. Yeah, we, we do a lot of reports like this, and it's really important that we understand 
kind of what we want the output to be, what story we're trying to tell, and then capture insights from a representative audience that, that's a bit diversified, right? So if we go say, hey, let's go see what marketers think they should be doing for sales to support sales programs, and we don't ask sales how they think about it, right? We've only got part of the picture. So it's important for us to have representatives on the sales and the marketing side. It's also important for us to have representation from a leadership and a rank and file standpoint. Too right. often, sometimes you'll see leadership say it's fine, and the rank and file will say, no, it is not. So we wanted to make sure we had insights on all of the above to provide a better picture of what to do moving forward. Yeah, I noticed that. Buy-in from everybody. I thought the uh, 31.6% sales operations, revenue operations, business development, marketing, uh, you even got sales enablement in there and sales, of course. I thought that was inter- interesting from a functional role standpoint. The You found there were some key findings in here. You have five major key findings. I want to go through all five. Uh, right. You can chop to them as fast as you want. But let's go through the first one, the first key finding in this overview. And by the way, uh, can anybody download this report? I should ask this. Or is this available? Oh, yeah. No, it's available for free, bigtancan.com. It's available free to everybody. Got it. All right. So the first key finding is that high-performing teams have unlocked the key to streamlining buyer-centric sales enablement strategies. Now, when I first read that, I go, okay. But I know there's something beyond this. When I read more, I go, okay, I see what he's talking about, you know, you know, break that, peel that back for me, as they say. Yeah, yeah. I, the, the key part to that for me and the, the, key, and the, the key real takeaway for people, I think, is the buyer-centric side of this. Because too often, I think, when sales enablement came out of an effort that was often driven by product marketers, right? And right. the product marketers are delivering, like, product-centric messaging to sales. Here's some sales sheets. Here's some feature sheets. Here's how to describe what our different features do. That's all fine and good, and your prospects are going to need to know that. But if you're not doing that in a storytelling way that is buyer-centric, right? If you can't tell a story about what your product or service can do where the prospect is the hero, not your product is the hero, then you're creating friction in the process, right? So the key across the companies doing this well was that they took the buyer perspective as deep into the process as possible. And even when they were talking about themselves, they put the prospect at the center of that story. The prospect is the hero. Your product is the sword. Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. I love it. I love it's part of that. You know, is, is part of that story. Yeah, I love that. But and by the way, when I came up with this podcast of finding the why and how people buy, it was because I wanted to see it from the buyer's perspective. And you mentioned something interesting. And again, you you have these little throwaway phrases that I think are just gold, little gems that people are not <laughs> listening. And that is, you talked about friction, something that I, I think people don't really think about. And the, yeah. I read a book and I interviewed the CEO, um, uh, and co-author of Effortless Experience, Matt. Um, I forgot his name already. Matt Dixon. And I don't know if you've ever read the book Effortless Experience. They came up with the customer effort score, which is a measure of friction. Mm. You know, tell me how, you know, explain to the audience why understanding friction and reducing that friction is important. Look, I mean, we're all crazy busy, right? Like we got more stuff flying at us all the time. Like even even if I'm committed to change, even if like what you represent and the problem you solve is really important to me, I got 14 other things going on, right? I mean, as we do this, like I'm it's a it's a Tuesday as we record this. I'm working from home. I'm in my basement. It's summer. My wife and kids are upstairs. I mean, there's lots of going on, right? And so our ability to focus is is harder than it's ever been. If you if you 
the easier you can make it to, for the prospects to follow you and to follow a line of reasoning where you're going, the better you're going to be. Friction comes in a lot of different ways. It can come in like you shoehorning a sales process that is different than the way I buy. Like I, I've got a, I got a company that, um, you know, they were they're they are very focused. They have a very small company selling mindset. One of those like, hey, it's the last day of the month. I'll give you a free setup fee. You want to close? And they're trying to use that selling process to enterprise companies that have right. like months long procurement processes. That ain't gonna work. That's creating friction. Like if I don't know you, you don't know me, and you send me like a five paragraph email. That's friction. I'm not going to read that. Like, I don't know you. I'm going to delete that and just move on. And no matter how well you crafted that message, it's not going to get through. So understanding where the prospect is, what they need next, knowing sometimes that three steps is faster than one. I realize that you would like to turn that white paper download into a demo today. But I'm telling you, if you help me understand why that's important, if you help me understand the opportunity cost of taking advantage of it, if you help me in small chunks understand why i need to change i'm much more likely to stick with you right so moving too quickly when a prospect isn't able to do that is is friction as well so there's a lot of different ways you can define that and again back to this idea of being buyer centric put yourself in their shoes understand what they know today understand where they might need to go next like don't do an elevator ride of 80 stories do a story at a time and get them to the top yeah, I got a simple example for you. Somebody sent me over a uh, an NDA to look at yesterday, right, before mm-hmm. they shared their uh, content with me. And they send it over in a PDF form, like a Word document turned into PDF. And I'm like, now I have to, I have to look at this thing. I have to print yeah. it. I have to sign it. Then I have to scan it back in the Dropbox, download from Dropbox to send it. And I'm like, you could have just gone to DocuSign, not to promote them, but anybody else. You could have gone to DocuSign. I could have signed it online two steps and all this friction is everywhere in the buying process. I think that's what you're really alluding to. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and sometimes we think about, you know, sort of, you know, capital F friction is sort of the big things that are keeping people from moving forward. Okay, well, the, you know, the CFO isn't bought off or procurement's going to be a problem. Yes, those are problems. But too long of an email telling someone they need to watch your 15-minute demo to get a live person on the phone. Like these are all examples of things that well-meaning companies are doing that are pushing crazy, busy, distracted prospects away. I love your language sometimes, the big F. There's big Fs and small Fs. Big friction, small friction. You should use that. That is so hot. I love that. That's a big F. That's a small F. Yeah. And then there's an all caps. That's right. It's really big. (laughs) All right, man. Insight number two. Most sales and marketing teams do not prioritize the factors they recognize as having the greatest impacts on revenue. Man, really crack that egg open for me, man. Well, I give the example earlier of sometimes companies we see that are focused more on sales enablement than they are on demand gen. And I think it's recognizing that there are that it, it, looking across the continuum of your sales and marketing efforts and saying with a finite amount of resources, every company I know is working with a finite set of resources, people, budget, dollars, bandwidth. Where's the best place for you to be successful? Where's the best place for you to impact revenue? Knowing that you have partners inside the organization as well. Right? You've got a full sales team that, that, is, that wants to work with you. You've got product marketers that want to impact sales and want to impact revenue because it's going to look good on their, on their resumes as well. So, you know, if you can, again, we talked earlier about sort of, you know, those up into the right vanity metrics of more leads or more clicks or more everything. Like too often marketers say, if I just do more of that, then magically more sales are going to happen. That's not true. And so if you think about, like, for instance, if you're looking at at, at your sales process and you've got prospects that aren't closing, like right now as we record this, middle of 2022, deals are taking longer to close, right? Demand is still there. Need is still there. Deals are taking longer. 
how do I as a marketer, how do I as a marketing leader uh, attack that? What do you use something I'm starting to call confidence converters, right? What do you do to increase confidence with the prospect that this is a problem worth solving, that there is an end game that is worth achieving, that you are the right vendor to achieve that? If they aren't moving forward, if if they haven't made a decision to move forward, something is keeping them from doing that. If you can identify what that something is and create, it might be a message, it might be a stat, it might be a, you know, a referral or a reference account, create, identify those set of confidence converters that help get more of that pipeline closed. If you are an organization where sales are taking longer and, you are in, in, and you're in marketing, confidence converters may be your most important job right now. Right. And if your lead volume goes down or your clicks, video, video impressions go down temporarily, that is not necessarily you're making a trade off there, but you are focusing on the things that are going to have the highest impact on revenue. Dang it, Mac. I'm really starting to like you, Matt. I'm starting to like you. Man. I'm really starting not to like you. Not just the haircut? Not just the haircut. You know, what's interesting <laughs> is that you, again, you're, you're highlighting some of these subtleties is that when we talk, you're saying again plainly, but this confidence converter is big. Uh, there's a company called Tether did a big study. It says most, com- most companies who want to make a decision aren't stuck on status quo. They know they need to change. Yeah. They have a problem making a decision because they don't have any confidence in their ability to make the right decision, right. which is really what you're saying. And I think that's yep. powerful if people get that. Yeah. Yeah. Gartner a couple of years ago did some research around sales readiness um, mm-hmm. and they found that across multiple industries, mostly in B2B, three to four percent of companies in a market are actively buying, meaning they know they have a problem. They're moving forward mm-hmm. uh, w- with identifying a solution. Forty six percent of companies in their research is what they call poised. And mm-hmm. so poised means they have a problem. They're not actively pursuing it. Why do they know that they have a problem? Do they know the problem is big enough? Is it big enough, but there's some other obstacle in the way of getting it done? Like you may say, this is a really big obstacle, but I can't do this until after, you know, after, you know, the holiday shopping season, if you're doing retail, right? Um, So that poised category can include companies that are in your active pipeline. Companies have said, I have a need, I have budget, I'm a decision maker, like whatever criteria you want to use, and they're still not moving forward or something comes up that like pushes it off the pedestal. So they're poised, but not fully committed. Right? And that becomes an opportunity. Find what's missing there. Find which confidence is missing. And that's a place for you to go and work. Yeah. Man, you could just, we could, we could, we could do a whole podcast just on that one itself. That's, yeah. I've never heard that phrase poised. Um, let me see. Uh, number three here sales content related issues reign supreme as the biggest pain point for sales and marketing teams. Interpret that one for me. Yeah. I mean, that one. 90% of content that, that given to sales by marketing goes unused. I've seen versions of that stat from a bunch of different companies. Right. And what happens is too, too often companies say, well, the way I'm going to solve for that is I'm going to get rid of 90% of the content and I'm going to give sales less content so they actually use it. That's the opposite <laughs> of what you need to do, right? <laughs> if I, if it, it, unfortunately, sales needs more content yeah, because yeah. the reason they're not using 90% of the content is because it is inappropriate in the majority of situations in which they need to follow up with someone. So when I say you need to exponentially have more content, I don't talk about white papers and like, it could be a stat. It could be a quote. It could be a 30 second video snippet from another company in healthcare that you've solved a problem for, right? Whatever it is. But again, like go back to that content map. We talked about personas in motion, got buying journey and I've got buying committee. And each one of those boxes is a message that someone needs to hear. Now, that message might be a different format for different people. Do you think a CEO is going to read a 15-page white paper? Hell no. Do you think someone at an operational level who's trying to implement might read it? Maybe. Take that same content, get rid of the words. White paper without the words 
it's captions, <laughs> it's, it's images and graphs and captions. That's a flip book that a CEO might look at, right? And so if you think about that one piece of content broken down into different formats, now you have something that in the right context at the right moment might be relevant. So, and so managing all of this, I mean, this is why companies like Big Ting exist, right? Because like, as you get more and more content, it becomes more and more complicated to manage it, to make sure it's at the fingertips of your sales team at the right time. And then to make sure you can understand like how much of this is actually getting used and what's the downstream impact of this content once they use it. But it, it, it whether you, I mean, look, I don't think you can execute this at scale without a tool to do it. But even if you just manage it through spreadsheets somehow, your sales team needs more and better and more precise content from individual selling moments. Yeah, a spreadsheet's not going to do it, by the way. I think we no. both know that. Let's just, let's just call it call a spade a spade. Uh, if you're using a spreadsheet still to try to manage this stuff or curate this stuff, uh, that's not a good deal. The, not work. So the, the word curate always comes to mind when you know, we're yeah. having these conversations. So yeah. who curates this stuff? You know, when you're talking to companies, Matt, you know, how do they handle the curation of what content they deem useful for the sales team or even the, uh, you know, the SDRs and the BDRs? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I mean, that's, I think that's a key part of sales enablement and content creation, quote unquote, from marketing. I mean, if, if you let's, let's go back to like, you know, if you're a smaller organization, like I don't have a content team, I don't have a sales enablement team. Like, how, what the hell? I don't have. Listen, mm-hmm. if you don't have bandwidth to create content, curate everything. Like whatever problem you're trying to solve at a certain stage of the buying process with a certain member of the buying committee, someone has created content for that out there. Someone has a quote, someone has a blog post, someone has a video, like, and that becomes your message. Like, would you rather them be on your website? Would you rather them be in your brand and hear it from one of your people? So it actually builds more resonance with your story, not just that third party story. Sure. But I just mostly want the idea in their head. I mostly want them to sort of get the idea and believe in it so we can potentially take a next step. And that's what's important. So the idea of curating content from other people is one of the most <clears throat> undervalued, underappreciated, underutilized strategy in sales enablement. I agree. I agree. I live off of uh, like my biggest lead generator is YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I've learned to like observe what other people are doing, my competitors, right? But more importantly, I ask customers, what are you worried about? What's not working? Yeah. Yeah. They tell me what I need to know, and I just create the content around it. So it could be that simple. So <clears throat> bullet point number four in the report, most buyer-facing teams recognize they are not meeting buyer's expectation. This is getting good. And it reflects in their revenue performance. Matt, I'm just going to let you chainsaw this one. Just go for it, Matt. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you sense a recurring theme in some of these bullet points, right? Mm-hmm. Like buyer centricity. Like, why are they not responding? Why are they not interested in my demo? Why are they not interested in reading more about my what? product? Why are like, they ghosting me, Matt? Matt, why are they ghosting me? Oh my gosh! Like, and I see it all the time. You know, just every one of our inboxes. Is, if you're listening to this, you probably also get a bunch of people saying, like, "Hey, I sent you a note that was all about me. It was like five pages long yesterday, and today I sent a reply saying, like, hey, just bubbling this back to the top, right? That's it. But, oh." Matt, Matt, I just want to pause you. If I hear bubbling or bump to the top again on my email, I'm just I, I just delete stuff now because there it's just to me it's 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 laziness. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's okay. fine. We can go down this rat hole because then you get that one, and then the two days later it's the same thing, and three days later it's a gif of an alligator saying, "Are you okay? Are you stuck in a swamp? Did you get eaten by a bear? Why haven't you responded to my message about myself?" Yeah. I mean, well, literally. Yeah. So you know, if you think about like, buyer centricity, it's not just. Yeah people talking yeah. about their products yeah. it's it's messages that i don't even like 
All yeah. I can, all I'm trying to do is get through my day. I got stuff yeah. I'm supposed to get done that I'm not getting done. And if I see a message that doesn't al- that doesn't land for me, mm-hmm. I'm moving on, right? Okay. And we forget sure. that when you get, even if you get someone who is committed to change, even if they buy off on the problem, if they quantify the problem and they buy off on that, mm-hmm. the second half of the sales process still isn't all about you. The second half of the sales process is, guess what, about them. Every time. How often do you see um, pr- uh, proposals, like sales proposals, that the first several pages are, here's how great our company is and here's all about our company and here's all the things you're going to buy, as opposed to, because that proposal is probably going to go to either a CFO or a procurement person who has not been involved in the sales process right. and doesn't buy, hasn't bought off on the why. The first page of your proposal needs to reinforce the why. Why did a commitment to change happen? Why is it important to you, the buyer? What impact is it going to have for you, the buyer? Then get into how you're going to solve it. Every time you can reinforce the why, every time you can reinforce the buyer-centric message, right. the better <laughs> off you're going to be, the less friction you're going to have, more velocity and momentum you're going to keep. You, you bring up a great point, very subtle. The, if I'm a salesperson and I'm selling right to, into an organization, you're right. There are different buyers, right? Within that organization, there's a management buyer, you know, with the user buyer, the technical buyer, economic buyer, the legal buyer, information, all these buyers. And then each of those buyers have different motivations for why they would want to move forward with something and be part of the decision-making team. And so I just wanted you to kind of put a finer point on why, you know, a system, whether it's Big Tin Can or anybody else, why a system is important because it's hard for a salesperson to manage that type of content to know what bullets to fire depending on who they're talking to. Talk to me a little bit about that, what, what the best companies are doing to actually answer that. You know, in other words, let me clarify the question. I'm a salesperson. I'm talking to five different types of decision makers. I need to have the right content for each of these decision makers that I can present. And I'm so glad I have it in my system that I can just pull it out and use it. Talk to me about what companies are doing or not doing to address that right there. Well, again, I don't make this a sales pitch, but they're using tools like Big Team Canada to do this. You know, I think, you know, before, you know, in, in an old world, it was a single message that you hoped everyone kind of understood because it wasn't, we didn't really have the, salespeople don't have the capacity to remember all those different messages or organize it themselves. I mean, it's not, it's not about salespeople not being able to do it. It's just like, that's impossible to do manually. Um, but if you're talking to a CFO versus a CIO, a C-level employee versus a rank and file line level employee, like there's a different angle to that message. Like the ultimate problem they're solving may be the same, but everyone's going to approach it a little differently. Like we want to change out the CRM, right? Like on a new, buy a new CRM system. The CFO says it's fine. What we have is fine. We have a great deal. It's fine. The line level person says, no, it's broken, right? Same problem to be solved, but they need to have different messages, right? And so if you understand different messages and now different messages at different points in time along the buying journey, like if you're selling something that takes months, if not quarters to close, the number of interactions and messages along that continuum is significant. What is the right message at each one of those, each one of those points? And how do you know as a sales rep, okay, where are we in the process? Where are we? How, how many conversations have happened already with the CFO so that I can leverage those conversations with this person over here? Let me give another quick example. One of the, my very first clients 14 years ago was in the HR space. And, um, you know, I, I, I made the very wise decision to start my business in November of 2008, right as the market was tanking. Um, but it was just me and a laptop and a bus pass. So it was fine. Um, but this company we work with went from the, eight, the head of HR being able to make a purchase decision to now having to go to the CFO to make that purchase decision. So they no longer had direct buying authority. The CFO 
didn't want to get on the phone for this product. It was still too small for the CFO to talk about. So our sales reps had to teach the head of HR how to have an internal conversation with the CFO. Like we literally created like role playing and practice scenarios with our right. reps and the heads of HR to practice how to present to the CFO, what messages she was going to want to hear, as well as here's the qu- objections you're probably going to get. And here's how to handle those. Right. Love it. So Love- same thing. It's sales enablement. Right. I mean, like I don't have direct access to the CFO, so I'm going to leverage my sort of influencer enthusiast to go and do it. But you still have to break down that message in a bunch of different ways. And like having a tool like Big Ding Hand makes it so much easier to do yeah. that at scale. Yeah, training a champion is always a good thing. That's, I love the fact that you brought that up. I, I wanted to ask just one more finer point on this. It might be a tough one to answer, but I want you to put yourself in a position of a small, medium-sized business. Again, I got 20 salespeople, but I don't have a lot of money, a lot of budget. I still need somebody to curate this content, really develop the mm-hmm. content, right? Build it out, curate it, you know, format it, organize it. Well, if I'm a small, medium-sized company, I mean, do I dedicate a person to it? Is that a good strategy? Do I dedicate two people to it? I mean, what are you seeing out there for these mid-tier companies? How are they yeah. executing this to try to use these these tools? Well, I mean, you have to put some resources into, you know, you have to front load getting a lot of those insights. Um, so some companies just sort of make it an initiative for marketing, you know, if they're putting this together for a quarter to do it. Um, some companies candidly outsource that to companies like us, right, to say, okay, like we're going to build out that buying map of buying committee members, buying journey, and then what messages go in there and sort of how do we enable that to the sales organization? Like we can set something like that up. And then it's a lot of front-loaded work. And then, you know, on a periodic basis, sometimes just once a year to go back and recheck that the buyer hasn't changed significantly, recheck that the buying process hasn't changed significantly. And if it has or anything has shifted enough, maybe you audit what's in that curated set of content and say, okay, which of these need refining? Which of these stats are a little old and we need to sign something more more up to date which of these insights or which of these messages are more impactful than others seem to have a bigger impact on driving commitment and conversion and are some of those that you want to go create for yourself they're so important and have so much traffic and value and impact you say like we've been leveraging this third-party site we want to go create this content ourselves so it's on our site right um so i think there's some maintenance on an ongoing basis through an audit but you do have to dedicate some time and effort up front to get in this build um, so, but so if you th- do that with a focus on curation versus creation, you can do it a lot more cost effectively and do it a lot more quickly. I love that. I love that. So, so three part answer, right? One, if you have the money, uh, dedicate it within like, you know, again, within the marketing organization, make it an initiative. Uh, you can try to do it on your own. Uh, the learning curve is going to be, you know, a, a difficult there. Or, and I'm not trying to promote your company, but find an organization like yours to say, let us kickstart you, give you a roadmap for how this stuff could work. Fair assessment. Yeah, and I would say on that last point, find an organization, whether it's us or someone else, find an organization that can kickstart this for you, but also teach you how to do it. Okay. So that you have the skill set and expertise and tools and toolkit internally to continue to maintain and improve that over time. Because I, I think that's where a lot of companies, I'm trying to be empathetic with my listeners here, because I think there's companies out there that are listening to this going, that's where I'm at. I can't afford to give it to marketing because we don't have that big of a budget, yeah. but I can't afford to do it my own because we don't know what the hell we're doing. But maybe the middle solution is finding somebody like yourself or a company like yours to say, hey, here's kind of a roadmap to help you not only, as you say, create, but also curate at the same time. Number five in the report, final one, preparing buyer-facing teams to exceed buyers' expectations, have value-based conversation, personalize the most relevant content for buyers. I think we hit all these already, right? Or would you like to add anything to that? 
like I said, it's you know you, you you start to read through these and it's kind of a broken record. But I think this last one really gets into like how does all of this manifest in the way your prospect feels about you as an organization? Like this is a sales funnel, not a sales cylinder, right? Like you don't close a hundred percent of the opportunities you work with, and a lot of opportunities like go away not because they bought from someone else, they go away because they were poised and not ready to buy. Many of those prospects are going to buy eventually. Many of those are eventually going to have a heightened need around that. What experience, what perspective, what impression did you leave as a brand, as an, as, as a, as a selling organization that makes them want to come back to you? Right. Um, I think we've all probably experienced sort of like the end of the month, end of the quarter sales rep, just trying to like scorch earth, get some deals in the, in the, you know, back in you go scorch earth. You may get a couple in and you may then burn up deals that could have happened next month, next quarter, next year. So that buyer centric approach is not only helping you close more deals. Now it is increasing your long-term yield on opportunities for prospects that aren't quite ready today. I can't tell you. So a couple things. One, you got a you got a decision maker who couldn't build consensus internally, but takes a new job and brings you in there because they believe in you, because they believe in the approach, they believe in your output. Two, I've seen many companies take this approach and get more referrals from prospects than they do from customers. Prospects that have never spent money with your organization are still sending people your way because of the way you treated them, because of the way information you gave them, because of the insights you gave and enabled them with. Right? Again, going from being interruptive to being irresistible, this has ripple effect beyond just this month, this quarter's pipeline. Right. Uh, yeah. I'm listening to this going, yeah, yep, yeah. What did you mean by uh, – I never heard the phrase. I'll tell you, you're, you're introducing some stuff to my lexicon, which I appreciate that. I, I'll always take the, the upscaling of my, 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 my vocals here. Sales funnel versus sales cylinder. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think just, I've never heard that. Oh, well, I mean, if, if for those of you watching, I mean, the sales funnel, right? Like you get, right. you know, you assume that a, a certain percent of your demand is going to convert into a short-term opportunity. Right. And, you know, when you, def when you sort of say short-term opportunity, is it band, budget, authority, need, timeline, however you define it, up front when you create an opportunity, you're like, oh, this is going to close. This is going to close, right? Like only 25 to 33% of what's in your pipeline is actually going to close right now, right? The majority right. of stuff in your pipeline is not going to close. It might close some other day. It might close by that person being in another company. But the majority of his people in your pipeline aren't going to be part of your quota making right now. How right. are you treating those people, right? It's not a cylinder. It's not like I generated 10, 10 pieces of demand. I got 10 opportunities. I got 10 sales. It's never gotcha. that way. Right? So the vast majority of the people you are talking to and working with are not going to buy, but they might buy later. And they might influence yeah. other people that will buy later. So the way, you, the way you treat those prospects, even those that aren't willing to buy, has a direct impact on your future sales. Yeah, I, th I think that's important. You mentioned that they buy later. I like the fact that your prospects will refer business to you even though they haven't bought anything. I that's happened. I, so I know that's for a fact. But, but I want to get back. If, if I were to summarize this, this conversation, a lot, we talked about a lot of great stuff. But I'll go back to your, your phrase, the confidence converter. Because mm -hmm. as you say, there's some deals in that pipeline. If people knew how to, I guess, make the buying decision because you give them the confidence to make the buying decision because you have the right content curated. I think that right there to me is, is probably the big takeaway for me of this conversation. Uh, Matt, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, take it away, Matt. Anything you want to say? Yeah, I'm just going to be the broken record again. You know, Whatever you can do to put your customer at the center of the story 
at the beginning and the middle at the end of the buying journey. Your customer is the hero. Their story is the only story that matters. And if you become the vehicle, if you become the tool that helps them achieve that success, great. But it is their success you are focused on throughout the process. And so the more you speak to them, the more you speak and build value for them, the more they're going to stick with you, the more they're going to keep listening to you, whether they can buy today or not, the more that is going to impact your business directly and indirectly for a long period of time. And there you have it from Reverend Matt Hines on the Soapbox. I love that, Matt. Hey, Matt, let them know where they can find out more information about you and your services. So a lot of what I'm talking about here is just reflected in our content, HeinzMarketing.com, Heinz like the ketchup, Marketing.com. We've got uh, best practice guides. We've got research. We've got uh, white papers. We've got, they're all available for free. So anything related to building predictable pipeline on our website. And I'm just Matt, M-A-T-T at HeinzMarketing.com. Look forward to hearing from anyone and what you agree with and what you don't from today's podcast. Love it. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio with the Sales Influence Podcast. Leave me some feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you're listening or watching. And after you do that, go to HeinzMarketing.com. Check out the information on Matt. Uh, Download the white paper that we're reading today about the roadblocks. You're going to find some fascinating data points in there. We barely scratch what's really in this report, which I think is exceptional. And after you do that, check out the Sales Velocity Academy, where I help you sell more faster. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio, always reminding you, selling ain't hard when you give your clients confidence and you know how. Take care. Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. 